The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today I ask you to turn and with me use the Pew Bible or your own Bible to the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, with four Christmas messages before me today, next Sunday, and two on Christmas Eve day and evening. I'm looking at the first two chapters of Matthew and following through those two chapters for those messages. And I'm reading a something that's not easy to read. I suppose you think in seminary they teach you how to pronounce all the names of all the Old Testament people. They don't. You have to figure it out for yourself. I'm reading a part of Scripture that some people would overlook or pass by, and I am suggesting to you today that it has things in it for us to pay attention to. Listen to Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon was father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was father of Joram. Joram was father of Uzziah. Uzziah was father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah was father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was father of Shealtiel, And Shealtiel was father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was father of Abiud. And Abiud was father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, father of Azor. Azor was father of Zadok. And Zadok was father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methan. And Methan was father of Jacob. Jacob was father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 
generations. This is God's holy word. When any person sets out, as some will, especially in the new year coming up, with good intentions to read through the Bible, I know that if they're just taking a consecutive approach, starting with Genesis, they're probably going to do pretty well through Genesis because there's exciting storylines there and well through Exodus as well. But then they're going to move on and perhaps bog down a little bit in Leviticus when they get to sacrificial regulations. But if they make it through First Chronicles, I'll be ready to congratulate them because that is the book where they have one after another of genealogies. So on this one begat this one begat this one and Many people come to that, and of course it becomes kind of, let's, be, let's admit it, boring filler material. And you ask yourself, of what value is this? And so today we saw, as we open the page of the New Testament, here it is again. Perhaps you wonder what Matthew was thinking about. Uh, if you have any attachment to the publishing industry or you've ever been a writer, you might say, Matthew, you needed a good editor who could sit down with you and say, look, you have to hook your reader's interest and draw them in. And the way to do it is not with a long list of names that they have no idea who these people are or why you're telling about them. I wonder if you ever asked that question or answered it yourself. Why in the world do we find this? Well, okay, we're not supposed to assault Scripture or or say wrong things about Scripture, but in your heart of hearts you say, what a boring list. What is this? I can't even pronounce some of these names. Why are they important? They're important because Jesus was a real human being. He was anchored in the world by his family line. In this case, the family line of his surrogate father, his adopted father, Joseph, who was not his lineal genealogical father or blood father. In fact, we know, sidelight, there's another genealogy in Luke chapter 3, and it's different because it leads more directly to Mary, who was his flesh and blood mother. But we ask, why should we bother with a gospel genealogy? Well, the ancient and historic reason to bother with it is because this is like a person's social security number. And you know how you memorize that social security number? They, they used to confuse me in, in recent years when they started saying, last four digits of your social. I always had to start at the beginning and work through to find out what the last four were. You know that that's a, a very important number that follows you all through your life. You're told don't use it casually, don't give it in places where it isn't really necessary to give it out because if somebody has that, they have your identity. And, of course, they can do uh, destructive things for you with that. In early days, biblical days, especially in Israel, your identity through paternity was the great line of your identity. They didn't have Social Security numbers, but a man, if he went to buy property, they would say, well, of what tribe are you? Who was your father? And they might or might not sell you the land, depending on whether you were of the right Identity. If you could say, well, I'm the son of Jacob, who's the son of Shealtiel, who's the son of Zerubbabel, great. If you had at least a few generations memorized, which people would in that time be able to tell 
who they belonged to and why, who they were in the law. Now, we know that Matthew was deliberately selective here in constructing this and saying there were 14 generations for these key things. In some cases, he was saying this one was the father of when really it was the great-grandfather or the grandfather. You say, well, what, what do you mean? Wasn't he accurate? Well, he was giving a sample of all the names that belonged in a much larger. I think I'd still be reading if I was reading the exhaustive list of all the names that were there. But he was showing how this child who was going to come into the world in such a marvelous way, not the lineal son of Joseph himself, but the legal son of Joseph. That was important. Jesus got legal identity, his social security number, if you will, from Joseph. Even though the text makes very clear that he was only the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born. So this anchors Jesus in the reality of the world into which he was born. It might seem whimsical to think of this. Uh, I stumbled across a telephone book the other day. I thought, oh, telephone book, that's an interesting antique. Haven't used one of those in a long time. And I know there were not telephone books when Jesus lived, but if there had been, he would have been in one. It would have said, Jesus the carpenter of Nazareth and given you his identity phone number. If he received bills for lumber that he bought for his carpentry work, they would have been addressed to the real name of a real man. And, and this is part of that, anchoring Jesus in the legality of the world he belonged to. In part, what Matthew was doing was answering critics who disparaged Jesus for his background and his ancestry. You've recognized some of these things, a few examples of the remarks that came against him, trying to discredit him. Mark 6, 3 would be one where people said, isn't this the carpenter? You can sort of hear the venom dripping from their voice. Isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of Judas and Joseph and Simon. Aren't his sisters living right here down the street? In other words, they're saying, this guy isn't anybody. Is he trying to be important out of his station in life? In John 7, 27, they said, we know where this man is from. And when the Christ comes, nobody will know where he comes from. Well, that was an ignorant statement because the Scripture did say where the Christ was coming from, and those people chose to be ignorant of it. John 7.40 says, people, surely the Christ doesn't come from Galilee. You know, Galilee? Are you kidding? That's a backwater place. This man isn't important, in other words. There were words of spiteful derision. We don't think he's important. We don't think he has the credentials. And what Matthew was saying was he does indeed have them. He was related under the legal umbrella by his surrogate father, Joseph, to David, the great king, and Abraham, the great pioneer of faith for Israel. Matthew 1.1 labels this first chapter a record of beginnings. The Greek word is genesios. It's related to the Old Testament word for Genesis, beginning, the beginning of the creation of all things and humanity. You could sort of call this second Genesis. Now God is bringing forth in his Son a whole new beginning, something that offers new life promised from long ago. There was an old letter found 
from the first century. It was sort of an unimportant document. It was apparently a kind of birthday greeting, perhaps written by a fawning politician who was writing to Caesar Augustus on his birthday. And the writer, here's what the writer actually said. He was probably looking for a better job or some kind of favor. He said, Oh, divine Caesar, we may rightly regard your birthday as the beginning of all things, even in the world of nature. Oh, divine Caesar, he said, you were the beginning of good news for mankind. You are God. What? What amazing nonsense the man was writing. Yes, this Caesar Augustus was one of the best of the Caesars and a great man in some ways, but the beginning of this world and the world of nature? You've got to be kidding. That belongs to Jesus of Nazareth, the little baby that nobody recognized in his time, not to the great Caesar. So first of all, we can say here this, yes, what seems like a boring list of names anchors Christ in the real world of human beings. Secondly, as we look at this family tree, we're reminded that God is keeping his long-term promises. And that has to do particularly with the way the genealogy emphasizes for legal purposes that Jesus was son of David and son of Abraham, the two, two of the very greatest. If you want the greatest names in the history of Israel, only Moses is left out of that list. Jesus was the seed of David, this genealogy is saying. He fulfilled a promise in First Chronicles 17. There the Lord told David this, When you go to your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom and his throne forever. That was going to be for a son of David. Well, who was the next son that we would have in the picture that way? Solomon. Well, wait a minute. Solomon died. He had a great throne. We were told he ate off of solid gold plates, and people admired him for his wisdom and his riches and the extensiveness of his kingdom, but he died. He didn't have a kingdom that lasted forever, nor did any human king. The fulfillment of this prophecy must be someone greater than Solomon in all his splendor and his wisdom and his riches. And the last chapter, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation twenty-two sixteen, tells you who this everlasting king is. Why, it's Jesus, who's called there in Revelation 22, the root and offspring of David. But more than that, the prophecies about Abraham. Abraham was the father of the covenant, the idea of God saying, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'll give you a great people if you obey me and walk in faith. The people who, who come from you will be greater and wider than the stars in the sky. This to a man in his 90s who had no kids. God began something with Abraham, and he said, Walk by faith before me. Trust me. I will be a great God to you. And in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, the Lord said to Abraham, In your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Was that promise fulfilled? Ask Paul. In Galatians 3.16, Paul had that specific text in mind from Genesis 22 when he wrote, when the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, God did not say to your seeds, 
plural, referring to many, but to your seed, singular, referring to one who is the Christ. So you see, this genealogy tells us that in the legal way, in the relationship that counted within Israel, even though it was through his surrogate father, Joseph, Jesus was of the line of David the king and Abraham the man of faith. But then I think the, the really interesting part of this, if you're not interested yet, maybe you're not, uh, the really interesting part of this genealogy comes when you think about what you might call the knots in K-N-O-T, knots in this family tree. The ethnic outsiders and even shady people who are included in this family tree without any concealment, the realism of the people. here, here. And here, folks, I have to tell you, you don't find women in Hebrew ancestry lists. Try it out. Look through most of the genealogies of the Old Testament. You will rarely, if ever, find a woman mentioned because it was paternity that mattered in, in Israel. What do we find here? We find four women listed in the family line of Jesus, and they are not the great noble matriarchs of Israel like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, and so on, Abigail, and some of those. They are Tamar, who deviously seduced her own father-in-law in Genesis 38, Rahab, a Canaanite and a prostitute who aided the spies of Israel, Ruth, who was the most morally upright of them, but she too was a Moabite, ranking very low on the social scale, not an Israelite, and the fourth woman is simply called the wife of Uriah, who, of course, was Bathsheba, David's infamous mistress. Here are four women, all of them of non-Israelite origin, three of them of questionable moral reputations in the noble line of Jesus. And besides that, add up the fact that some of these kings and and leadership people who are in here, Jeconiah, for example, a horrible guy, a really wicked man. And there are others, too, who are hardly righteous kings or righteous rulers. And in some cases, the righteous ruler was the father of an unrighteous one, and the unrighteous one was the father of a righteous one. It's all in there, all mixed in. The point is, Jesus came into this world with a family tree of broken people, sinful people, cast-off people, outsiders, people who had no legal standing. Yes, David, oh, here's, he was a great one, but, but think of him. Think of his moral failings. He had a nature that was wayward and rebellious that required humiliating repentance from him. The point is, all the ancestors of Jesus were people who needed a Savior, and they needed Christ who would come. Their descendant would be the one who would fulfill their hopes that God would save them. We're not told here that Joseph begat Jesus. We're told that the genealogical trail terminates with him, but notice how the virgin birth is witnessed to here because it says Joseph was husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus called the Christ. The miracle of the virgin birth is there as well. Well, in conclusion, you, you may still say, Pastor, I just don't see what's the point of all this listing of things. It doesn't seem to mean anything to me. 
I want to say to you that it ought to occasion you to think about your family and the value of any family into which any of us are born. Perhaps your siblings or your children or extended relations, your cousin, your brother, your sister, are people that are problems in your life. We've just been through Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, often I've seen some cartoons in the paper, uh, cartoons about family relationships at Thanksgiving. I won't go into what they had to say, but, you know, we all know this. We all have Uncle Joe, who's uh, sort of a problem guy and doesn't believe what we believe, and we have to watch certain subjects and tiptoe around Uncle Joe or he'll explode or something. You've been there, right? Been there and done that? Christmas is coming. You're writing letters and getting letters and cards and so on from people maybe you're not on the greatest terms with. I ask you to think of this as calling us to consider the value of the families into which we were born. You see, Christ came to earth not just to save sinners. He even was descended in the human lineage sense from sinners. He wasn't a sinner, but he was descended from them. They counted in his ancestral tree. Perhaps that might say to us that we are not accidents in our families, that we're in the families we're in for a reason in the providence of God, just as Jesus was in this family line for a reason. And the fact that we don't have perfect family relationships and perfect relatives And, oh, I'm sure you all do have perfect children. You just think other people don't. The fact that our families are not perfect happens to be normal. Families are the laboratories where God works his grace. Once humbled David had to deeply repent of great wrongs and throw himself on the mercy of God. And his doing that affected people in his nation just as his sin in the first place affected people. I won't bore you with a lot of personal story, but maybe you've heard me in the past tell this, that my own father's spiritual conversion to Christ at the age of 39 became like a seed planted in the ground that sprouted a fertile, beautiful plant that affected the heritage of our whole household. By any secular measure, my dad was an upright citizen for the first 39 years of his life blue-collar man. He never went to college. He served his country in World War II. He was a man of integrity. He was a Boy Scout leader. I remember one little incident with Dad that kind of speaks of who he was. Once I went with him to the hardware store riding in our 1954 Chrysler New Yorker. Those are the kind of things you remember. (laughs) We went to the hardware store, and as we got back home, Dad reached in his pocket for the change he'd been given and realized that he'd received a $5 bill when it should have been a $1 bill. And he said, son, don't get out of the car. Wait a minute, we're going back to the hardware store. I said, why? Did we forget something? He said, no, they gave me too much change. We drove four miles back to the hardware store. Dad went in and had a hard time convincing the manager that he should take $4 from him because he'd been, uh, in his mind, he had gypped the store. He didn't make the mistake. The clerk made the mistake, but... Dad had to give back $4. That's the kind of dad I had. He didn't have to lecture me about integrity after that. I knew what integrity was, and that's how he lived. But there came a day when I was 12 years old and Dad was 39, 
I now have sons this age and older. When Dad responded to an invitation at a Baptist church and accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior, he changed. I could see it. Everybody who knew him could see it. All of a sudden, the Bible was his compass and prayer was his daily guide, and he was a new man in many ways. And I want to say in the scriptural language, he being dead yet speaks through grandchildren and great-grandchildren who don't even know him, never knew him. He died in 2004. They didn't know their great-grandfather, but his changed life affects their life right now today. There's a living legacy in the family that dad planted. Folks, not one of us has anything we can brag about very much in our human ancestry. You might be, is there still the organism, you don't have to answer this question just to yourself, the organism, the Daughters of the American Revolution, I remember was a, and I, I please, I, I honor the organization, but, but if I understand it, it's, it's descendants of people who fought in the American Revolution, and there's a good deal of pride, and justifiably, of course, that someone's ancestor, but are, is that going to carry you through life? My ancestor fought in the revolution? Good thing, but you need more than that to motivate and honor your life. My ancestor came over on the Mayflower. My ancestor was Abraham Lincoln. How I would love to be able to say that. But guess what? It doesn't matter. What matters is that I look to the ancestor who's called the Ancient of Days, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, And I have a living heritage of new life because his Holy Spirit dwells in me and has given me a new eternal birth. And my name is written in that book of life. You cannot change your ancestry. But by the power of God, by your witness, by your prayers, by your consistent integrity of of living a moral, biblical life, you can radically affect generations to come after you. You can be a strategic branch in your family tree, and God can work through you in quiet ways. When you don't think he's working, they're watching. If they know you're a Christian, they're watching. And you might think they're watching with sarcasm and scorn and and avoidance of your testimony. Just keep praying. Just keep testifying. Keep being God's man or woman in that family tree. And one day, perhaps, that tree will hang heavy with the fruit of God's blessing as the power of the gospel changes others, even through you, as the ancestry of Jesus Christ works itself out in his many, many thousands of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren in this world. May God bless you. Father, we think of this. Our families are much on our minds this time of year. We're buying them gifts. We're exchanging messages and phone calls and all kinds of ways of communicating with them and about them. We're writing letters. Maybe some write letters that are full of boasting about family, but they're not boasting about some critical, hurtful issue in the family. Father, I pray that you make us faithful within the laboratory of grace that is our families. We thank you for those who have gone before us with a godly heritage, and we pray that we might be counted as such one day by your grace. Amen.